the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. Hello, you spooktacular people. Welcome to this 132nd episode of the History Ghost Bump podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Denise. And on today's episode, we are featuring a location that was suggested to us by our listener, Sarah Gunther. We're going to Wyoming, Denise. Yeehaw. Buffalo, Wyoming, to be exact. And we're going to visit the Occidental Hotel. Yeah, I've never heard of Buffalo, but we have visited some areas of Wyoming. I've actually visited almost the entire state. Have you been to Buffalo? I don't think I've been to Buffalo, though. Oh. We had research assistance from Stephen Pappas on this one. Before we get into that, we'd love to have you guys check out our website at historygoesbump.com. Denise, if people want to send us an email, where can they do that? They can do that at historygoesbump at gmail.com. And Denise, on today's episode, there are a couple of men who have stayed at this hotel by the name of Phil Sheridan and Teddy Roosevelt. Both of their names uh, recently came up for us because we have a correction to make to our correction on last episode. We always like a correction to a correction. We had a listener tell us that Teddy Roosevelt had said the only good Indian was a dead Indian or something like that. I remember. Well, anyway, Teddy Roosevelt never said that. And we were told that by both Mark Reed and Brent Warren. Thank you to you gentlemen for getting that corrected for us. Mark, let us know. The quotes, the only good Indian is a dead Indian is from four-star general Phil Sheridan in charge of the Union Cavalry. And he was considered one of the greatest cavalry officers in the United States Army. And he led the army against the Sioux and was in charge of the army during Little Bighorn and Wounded Knee. And then Brent Warren let us know, as a history buff and a fan of Teddy Roosevelt, I feel compelled to offer a correction to the correction you mentioned in episode 131 regarding Roosevelt's alleged attitude toward Native Americans. First of all, the quote you mentioned, the only good Indian is a dead Indian, is inaccurate. The actual quote is, the only good Indians I ever saw were dead. The quote also is misattributed. It was General Philip Sheridan who made that statement, according to biographer Roy Morris Jr. If he said it at all, that is, according to a Wikipedia article on Sheridan, Comanche Chief Tosawa reputedly told Sheridan in 1869, me, Tosawa, me good Indian." to which Sheridan supposedly replied, the only good Indians I ever saw were dead. Sheridan denied he ever made the statement. Morris states that nevertheless, popular history credits Sheridan with saying the only good Indian is a dead Indian. This variation has been used by friends and enemies ever since to characterize and castigate his Indian fighting career. In Bury My Heart at Wounded Knee, D. Brown attributed the quote to Sheridan but did not provide documentation to support his contention, so the quote may be more apocryphal than real. And I would hope that it was apocryphal Um, because it really is a horrible statement to make. And I'm glad that it was not Teddy Roosevelt who had said that because I've always kind of liked Teddy Roosevelt because he helped to set up the national parks and such. So, And we love the national parks, which are celebrating their 100th year this year, incidentally. 
We also heard from Tara Williams. Hey, ladies, when you go to Dayton, make sure you go to the Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. There is a museum there that is amazing. Last time I was there, it was free. Lots of info on the Wright brothers. Oh, and by the way, Ohio's motto is birthplace of aviation for the Wright brothers. P.S. If you are driving, go by Hamilton, Ohio. It's a little north of Cincinnati. There's this crazy store and interesting tour shop there called Jungle Gems. You can Google it. It is a must-see. Sounds good to me. And we also heard from Roxy Rockstar. I've been listening to your podcast since around Halloween of last year, and I just wanted to say thank you for all that you do. The research time, the effort, and the heart that you put into this podcast clearly shows in every single episode. You also care so much about your fans, and I can assure you that we care just as much about you. So thank you so much for that, Roxy. And then she just had said that when she'd heard about the shooting down here in Orlando, her first thought was, oh my gosh, we're both here. Are we okay? So thank you so much for your prayers for us. And she said, on a brighter note, I wanted to share a personal experience from the Whaley House in Old Town, San Diego, which I was so happy to hear featured recently. Back in the summer of 2006, my parents and I traveled there for vacation, celebrating my high school graduation. I'd heard that there was a seriously haunted house in Old Town, and I was literally telling my mom about it as we passed right in front of the Whaley property. She pointed the building and said, we're here, why not go inside? I hesitated for a moment before walking into the office and buying a ticket. After about 10 minutes in the building, I had calmed down. Traffic was bustling outside and I was starting to feel more at ease and less like I might see a ghost. As I was walking out of the parlor toward a staircase, I suddenly felt a sharp pinch on the rear and it was no muscle spasm. It literally felt like someone had pinched me and let go just as quickly. I guess my face gave away my shock because a nearby docent asked if I was okay. I struggled to find words to convey my experience and she indicated that I was standing in the exact place where the hangman's noose had been back when the property was the hanging ground. The last man to be hanged there had had a rather traumatic end and his presence is said to be regularly felt at the Whaley House. I would say that I probably felt it. <laughs> thank you for taking the time to read this, Roxy. Well, thank you, Roxy. And um, you felt something. I don't know yeah. if it was necessarily him. And when I wrote her back, I said, how interesting that it would be on the spot where the hangings would take place. Seems like a weird interaction to have there. Yes. And I don't know if I have a ghostly encounter. Why not a pinch on the butt? You know, <laughs> I'm like. I guess it's better than screaming in your face. Yeah, I think I would rather, well, I think I would rather have that than screaming in my face. And finally, we got a comment over underneath the cliffside in episode on our website from Red Top 10. And this individual said, Susie Doomy was great. And I have to agree. I have to third that agreement. And we want to welcome to the Spooktacular crew, Summer. Hi, Summer. And Denise, on our last episode, we had Autumn join us. Yes, we did. And so next episode, we can have, as you already asked where they were, maybe we'll have winter. Or spring. <laughs> there we go. Want to welcome Betty. Hi, Betty. Jamie. Hey, Jamie. Karen. Hi, Karen. And Karen spells her name R-O-N. And Lindsay, who spells her name L-I-N-Z-I. That's unusual. Hey, Lindsay with a Z-I. Denise, are you ready to head on out to the Old West there in Wyoming? I most certainly am. History Goes Bump is entirely listener supported. Become an executive producer for as little as $1 a month. Get listed on the website and invited to exclusive virtual meetups. For $5 a month, you get that and exclusive bonus content like the Haunted True Crime bonus cast. For $10 and above a month, you'll get all that plus awesome History Goes Bump gear. Check out patreon.com slash historygoesbump or you can support us via PayPal. Click the support the show tab at historygoesbump.com for more information.
History is full of oddities, curiosities, mysteries, and the truly bizarre. Welcome to This Moment in Oddity. And This Moment in Oddity is brought to us by Bob Sherfield. In the Edge Hill area of Liverpool in England lies a series of tunnels named for the man who created them, eccentric Victorian businessman Joseph Williamson. Williamson had made his money in tobacco and snuff, and now he had bought an area of Liverpool that was an undeveloped area of sandstone. He planned to build eccentric homes of the strangest description without seemingly any rational planning behind them. The land was on a slope, and in order to provide good-sized gardens, because of the slope and the quarian, arches and terraces were constructed. Williamson was a strange cookie who had his workers do busy work like moving rocks from one area to another and then having them move the rocks back. He then had them build the Williamson Tunnels, a labyrinth of brick-lined tunnels throughout the sandstone, running in various directions over different lengths. The tunnels seemed to have no point. In 1867, a local newspaper, the Liverpool Porcupine, ran an article in which it described the tunnels as a nuisance that seemed to only act as drains creating a cesspool 15 feet deep. Over the years, the tunnels became filled with debris, and despite a series of excavations by the West Lancashire Territorial Forces in the earliest 20th century, A 1995 study by Liverpool University using a microgravity study and a further private investigation, no one could figure out the length of the tunnels. What has been discovered and cleared includes an area known as the Banqueting Hall, which is 70 feet long and 25 feet wide and 20 high, a double tunnel and a triple-decker tunnel. To this day, no one knows why Williamson ordered the building of the tunnels. He was by his nature secretive, and it has been speculated that his motivations may have been driven by the fact that he was a member of an extremist religious sect, and the tunnels were his way of providing a means of shelter during the apocalypse he believed was coming. Williamson claimed that he was simply providing work. Spending the money and energy to build tunnels with no purpose certainly is odd. This history podcast is haunted. This day in history. This day in history is by April Rogers Crick. On this day, June 23rd in 1931, Willie Post and navigator Harold Gaddy took off for a round-the-world flight in the Winnie Mae, a single-engine airplane owned by Oklahoma oil baron F.C. Hall. Willie Post, one of the most celebrated pilots in aviation history, predicted that he could complete the first-ever round-the-world trip in an airplane in just 10 days. He enlisted the help of Australian navigator Harold Gaddy. While Gaddy plotted a route, Post made several changes to the Winnie Mae. He improved the instrument panel, installed adjustable seats, and added a special navigation station. On June 23rd, Post and Gaddy took off from Roosevelt Field on Long Island, New York, with a flight plan that would take them around the world. During their trip, Post and Gaddy faced some serious challenges, which included getting bogged down in a muddy field and a bent propeller they hammered back into place. They made several stops along the way in many countries before landing at Roosevelt Field. On July 1st, 1931, in just 8 days, 15 hours, and 51 minutes, Post and Gaddy completed the trip round the world. The reception they received everywhere they went was huge. They had lunch at the White House on July 6th, rode in a ticker tape parade the next day in New York City, 
and were honored at a banquet given by the Aeronautical Chamber of Commerce of America at the Hotel Astor. After the flight, Willie Post was able to purchase the Winnie Mae from F.C. Hall. Post and Gaddy published an account of their journey in a book titled Around the World in Eight Days. The book included an introduction by Post's best friend, Will Rogers. You're listening to History Goes Bump. The Occidental Hotel is a historic hotel in the town of Buffalo, Wyoming. The area is a place that has seen gold diggers come through during the gold rush and people making their way west on the Oregon Trail. Outlaws have been through as well as heroes of the American West. And a well-known battle of class warfare took place here during the days of the cattlemen. The town is also the setting for A&E's drama, Longmire. The Occidental Hotel was in the middle of much history, but after a steady decline for the town, it almost was lost to the wrecking ball. Today it has been restored to a grand hotel once again, giving guests a chance to go back in time to the Old West. And just like so many tales of the West, this one has a ghost story or two. Join us as we explore the history and hauntings of the Occidental Hotel. The state of Wyoming was the home of several nomadic plains tribes. The fondness European men had for beaver felt hats brought trappers to the state. Soon, the gold rush would bring people coming through Wyoming on the Oregon Trail, and forts were needed for protection. Settlers came, and in 1869, the Wyoming Territory was established. The Territory began petitioning for statehood in 1888, and in 1890, President Benjamin Harrison signed Wyoming into statehood, and it became the 44th state. Many listeners probably already know this, because I know you guys are history buffs, particularly you ladies out there. But women did get the vote for the first time in Wyoming, and I usually say it that way rather than saying they got the right to vote, because women have always had the right to vote. The Constitution has always guaranteed that. Unfortunately, people didn't necessarily believe that or follow through with that. Women's suffrage was established in 1869 in Wyoming, and the first vote was cast by Mrs. Louisa Swain in Laramie. And a little fun fact is that I lived in Wyoming for four months and Laramie was where I did live. Yes, she did. And sorry to all of you who do live in Wyoming right now. I thought it was hell on earth. (laughs) Well, you didn't like the wind and the cold. No, I'm not a small town girl and it was very windy, cold and snowy. The Bighorn Mountains stretch from the Great Basin and plains of Wyoming north into Montana. At the base of those mountains sits the town of Buffalo, Wyoming. It is the county seat for Johnson County, where the Johnson County War occurred. The bulk of this war took place in 1892. Wyoming was basically public domain, and people were flocking there to homestead. The larger farmers and ranchers ruled the area with a system called prior appropriation. Large cattle companies did not like having competition from small ranchers that were homesteading, and they started monopolizing the land. These larger ranchers even hired gunmen to wipe out the competition. The smaller ranches joined forces with some of Wyoming's lawmen and formed a posse. There was a long standoff, and finally the United States Cavalry came in and ended the war. This was one of the most well-known range wars of the Wild West. And many times you'll hear those smaller ranchers referred to as rustlers. Whether they were or not, I'm not sure. Because what would happen is they had open grazing land and everybody's cattle would just free for all. And we've even had this debate come up in more recent years when it comes to open range and things like that. 
So then they would have those things that we know in the West called roundups, where they would go out and they would collect all the cattle that were theirs. And this is why they would brand the cattle so that they would know whose was whose. And that worked out great for these large companies, but eventually these smaller ranchers were coming in and wanted to have their own ranches and stuff. And so I don't know if the cattle sometimes got mixed up or whatever, but it turned into quite a commotion. And uh, there's even movies been made about the Johnson County War and such. So it happened right here in the same place where the Occidental Hotel was built. The Occidental Hotel sits at the foot of the Bighorn Mountains and was located not too far off of the Bozeman Trail. This allowed for many travelers to visit and stay at the hotel on their journeys through the West. John Jacobs and John Bozeman decided that they wanted to create a trail that would make travel from the Oregon Trail to Montana easier. Their trail went through Wyoming up into Montana and it was much shorter. There was more water along the trail and it was very attractive to covered wagons. The trail was named for John Bozeman. There was one issue with the trail and that was the fact that it traveled through land that the Cheyenne and Lakota hunted buffalo upon. There were a few issues, and uh, I put that in quotes, and the government tried to make motions for some kind of peace treaty, which went horribly wrong when Colonel Henry Carrington came to construct three forts along the trail. He was joined by Captain William Fetterman. In 1866, he took a force to engage with the Lakota tribe headed by Red Cloud after a group of woodcutters were attacked. Red Cloud ambushed the military group with several other tribes, and the group of 80, 81, if you count Captain Fetterman, were killed. People were terrified by this, and the forts were abandoned. Red Cloud did sign a peace treaty and never fought the white man again, but the Bozeman Trail was effectively closed by this. You know, I was just thinking it was a good thing they named it after John Bozeman, because I don't know if you ever heard the song when you said John John Jacobs. Did you ever hear that song, John Jacobs, Jingleheimer Smith? <laughs> His name was my name, too. <laughs> oh, God. No, I never did sing that one. Oh, okay. Want to so give us a few lines? Well, since I can't sing, I won't do that. But I bet you some of our listeners probably know the song because it was like John Jacobs, Jingleheimer Smith. His name was my name, too. Whenever I go out, the people always shout. There goes John Jacob, Jingleheimer Smith. Da, 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 John. And you start again. <laughs> it's sort of like Henry VIII, I am, I am. <laughs> and now that's going to be going through my head because of our notes about John Jacobs with John Bozeman. And you just did that to all the listeners, too. Now they're going to be singing that song. They're going to be in the middle of work, and somebody's going to hear them in their cubicle singing that song. Well, hey, I could just start singing It's a Small World instead. Don't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Don't. Don't do it. The Occidental was an interesting hotel in its time, as it was fashioned from several log buildings connected to each other. It appeared to be a large barn with several outbuildings. The upstairs of the main building had six rooms. There was a lobby, a restaurant, and a saloon, as well as stables and kitchens. This original structure would be outgrown, and a larger wooden building would be built, connected to the log buildings. By the 1920s, the wood would be gone, replaced by a brick building. As the years passed, it became a grand hotel. The decor was replaced, and the volume of visitors increased. Throughout all the decades, even back to the early log structures, the hotel was known for its hospitality and good food. And many people came to stay at the Occidental, some of them infamous. The most infamous guests were Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, who rode to the hotel from their hole-in-the-wall hideout, which was nearby. That's very fitting, since this hotel was in the Wild West. The hideout was about 45 miles south of Buffalo. It's in a remote and secluded area and was used not only by the Wild Bunch, but Jesse James as well from the 1860s to 1910. 
The hole in the wall was named for the pass that is there, and it was an ideal location because the narrow pass was easy to defend. A creek ran through the canyon that the outlaws used to water their rustled cattle. At one time, a few cabins had sat here to help endure the cold Wyoming winters. Today, a working cattle ranch called Willow Creek Ranch is here. I've never been there, but I'd love to see it. That would be very cool. There were many famous visitors to the hotel during the heyday in the late 1800s. Buffalo Bill and Calamity Jane were frequenters of the establishment, and it also received visits from General Phil Sheridan, President Theodore Roosevelt, and Pinkerton Tom Horn. Famous lawmen like Frank Canton frequented the bar. He had once been the sheriff of Johnson County and was a member of the regulators who were on the sides of the big cattlemen during the Johnson County War. But Frank Canton was not his real name because he had changed it from Josiah Horner when he decided to stop being an outlaw. He once was a bank robber, cattle wrestler, and gunfighter who was pursued by the Texas Rangers. So you got to love that. He's a really bad criminal. And at the time, those were all capital crimes, especially cattle wrestling. The Texas Rangers did get him once and he managed to get away from him. And I don't know if that's what caused him to decide to get away from his bad ways. So he did what most people who want to get away from their bad past do. They change their names. But it's just funny to think that he was all of those things. And then here he is, a sheriff (laughs) of the whole county. It's like, here I am. (laughs) Particularly a county where they were saying that some uh, cattle rustling was going on. But yeah, I thought that was fun. The hotel boasted an air of hospitality. So it's no wonder that many weary travelers chose it as the place they preferred to rest their heads. According to the official Occidental Hotel website, quote, Early in its existence, the Occidental established a reputation for hospitality and fine food. Owen Wister, author of The Virginian, spent many happy hours in the Occidental lobby and saloon and based characters in his celebrated novel on cowboys and gunslingers that he observed there. Many historians believe that the shootout at the climax of the book, the first walk down in Western literature, took place in front of the Occidental, end quote. So I thought that was neat that he might have actually taken that scene from real life, something that he had witnessed. Exactly. The Great Depression hit the area hard. Wyoming was a dry climate, and as environmental issues affected the land, finances tightened for those living there. To put it simply, people just stopped spending on the luxuries that they had enjoyed just years earlier. As the spending decreased, so did the attendance at the Occidental Hotel. By the mid-1930s, the owners were struggling just to keep the doors open. This is a struggle that lasted years and took a major toll on the owners. The hotel saw a brief spike in guest attendance during World War II, but following the war, business declined again. As people traveled west, they began to prefer cheaper motels to the luxurious hotels of the turn of the century. By the 1970s and 1980s, Business had all but ceased, with the majority of the guest rooms being transitioned into apartments for retirees. Finally, after years of low business, the Occidental Hotel closed its doors in 1986. Some shops continued to occupy their spaces on the ground floor, but with little money coming in, the building fell even deeper into disrepair. In 1997, as preparations were made to demolish the once great building, Don and John Wexo bought the building, and they co-run the hotel with David and Jackie Stewart. They dedicated their time and funds to a 10-year remodeling of the building and returned it to its once great form. They've remodeled the building to look much like it did 100 years ago, and it's become frequented by tourists and spenders once again. It's been featured on hotel shows as well as multiple ghost hunting shows. Joan Rivers featured it on her show, Joan and Melissa, Joan Knows Best. 
and it is no wonder that with all the luxury of the hotel, some of the guests would not want to leave even after death. There have been many reports of people seeing strange lights floating around on the upper floors and feeling cold spots throughout the hotel. Guests have also reported hearing strange voices communicating with them and bouts of eerie, ghostly laughter in the halls of the hotel. Casper, Wyoming's ghost hunters have recorded some interesting EVPs at the Occidental. Travel Channel's Dead Files visited the Occidental and reported that a negative entity lived on the property. Steve interviewed a former employee who claimed to have numerous weird experiences. Another employee quit her job over the hauntings. Justin, who was the guy in charge of security when Dead Files came through, claimed he was so frightened that he didn't like working at the hotel. Perhaps the most widely acknowledged spirit we find is that of the ghost girl of the Occidental. Run-ins with this spirit have been reported by numerous patrons over the years. At one time in its vast history, the hotel briefly served as a brothel. Evidence of a porch that once overlooked the dusty street below can be seen, and one can imagine the ladies plying their wares from that porch. Kind of like when we were going back to the Dumas brothel, how they would kind of stand in the windows and show off their stuff. One of the prostitutes who was working there at the time had a daughter who passed away on the upper floor. People in the hotel report her having dark hair, and you guessed it, a white dress. A white dress? You've got to be kidding. (laughs) Either her ghost or some other spirit has been known to move guests' luggage and tap people on the shoulder. We surmise that this must be an older spirit since shoulders are a tad high for little girls. Or it could be something that occasionally masquerades as a little girl. The owner, Dawn, tells her story about the girl everyone calls Emily. There was a prostitute who had a daughter who died of cholera in the northwest wing where the brothel was. She was just a child. Sometimes people can feel her tapping her fingers on their backs, but one guest really got to meet her. He gave me the creeps as soon as he walked in. I've never felt creeped out by any guest, only him. His hunting party was snowed in down in Denver, so he was the first and only one to arrive. The whole northwest wing was empty except for him because the other rooms were held for those stuck in Denver. He was the guide, a mountain man, so when he called up screaming around 3 a.m., I knew why. He said that something was trying to pull his covers off the bed and they were throwing things around the room. I went upstairs, found his covers on the floor and the stuff on the dresser on the floor too. The little girl ghost picked up something about him. Maybe he was a wife beater or a pedophile. A prostitute's daughter wouldn't have had a good life, so she saw fit to attack the poor man. You know, it had to be scary if a mountain man was uh, scared and screaming and calling down to the front lobby. No kidding, because they're out there with like the bears and mountain lions and all of those (laughs) things. And of course, it's that interesting time of 3 a.m., which apparently is the witching hour. Absolutely. Mary reported on the In Wild Wyoming blog, I just stumbled upon your post about the ghost girl. I saw her in the room you've pictured here, the room with the brick wall. I was staying in that room about six years ago and I was really sick myself. I found out later that I had West Nile virus. I woke up around 3 a.m. and saw a girl about age 10 crawling on the floor towards me from the corner where the TV is. She had long dark hair that looked wet and a white nightgown that looked damp. She looked feverish. I figured that I saw her because I was sick too and would end up very ill. She didn't scare me and she didn't seem bad in any way. I've stayed in that room since and had no activity other than that one night. I don't know about you, Denise, but if there is a child crawling across the floor towards me, I'm going to feel scared. I think I would definitely feel scared and I think I would be 
kind of doing like the mountain man calling up screaming at whatever a.m. it was. Yeah, it's just that whole thought of wet hair and a wet nightgown and crawling at you and I'm having visions of the ring and (laughs) all kinds of stuff. No, no, no. And people wonder why I don't watch those movies. (laughs) Are the strange happenings at the Occidental related to paranormal activity? Are these just figments of people's imaginations as they travel back to an earlier time through their visits at the hotel? Is the Occidental Hotel haunted? That is for you to decide. Sounds like an interesting place. And it's very neat to see when you see the original pictures where it basically just looked like a big barn. And now you look at it and it's a nice brick building. Quite the change it's gone through in its time. Yes, a major transformation. And I always love these Old West stories. You just imagine these gunslingers out on the street and just how much fun it must have been back in the 1800s. (laughs) It's like all of a sudden, it's like you just, they slam through both the doors. (laughs) Exactly. I want to do that someday. Well, you're going to have to find a saloon that has swinging doors somewhere. I don't know if they even have those anymore. I guess we better go west, young woman. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we actually are going to go west. In our next episode, we're going to go all the way to the west, up towards the northwest, and we're going to have our first location in Oregon. Oh, very cool. This was suggested to us by our listener, Jonathan Fishletter, and he also will be joining us on that episode to share with us some creepy experiences he's had. And Denise, you know how the Haunted Mansion has hitchhiking ghosts? Um, Yes, I'm very aware of those hitchhiking ghosts. Well, apparently, McMenamin's Edgefield does too. And I'll leave it at that. Which is very cool. But even cooler is I love that name. McMenamins. <laughs> yeah, McMenamins. It sounds like fun. And it actually does. What it reminds me of is, I'm sure you've seen the movie Dirty Dancing. Absolutely. And you know, way back then, family trips, they would go to those kinds of, I don't know, what did they call those places? It was like a almost an all-inclusive vacation, like what you can do nowadays, but like it was an, back in that time. An all-inclusive type resort? Yeah, lodge, resort, something like that. But uh, it kind of reminds me of that, kind of taking you back to that time period where they used to do that kind of stuff. Mm, only a little bit more eccentric. Definitely. I think the water tower has moons and stars on it or something or carved into it. I, I'm not sure, but yeah, it looks like an eccentric kind of place. We had a great time talking to Jonathan. We think you guys will enjoy him as well. Yes, we do. Before we end this episode, we want to share a couple of iTunes reviews with you guys. First one is from Lily 40 Texas, my favorite podcast, five stars. I've been listening to this podcast for a while, and my only regret is that I've listened to so many every day that I'm almost fully caught up and will have to wait for new episodes. I love the perfect balance of paranormal and history, and the host Diane and Denise make you feel like we're all just friends sitting around sharing ghost stories over coffee. The ladies really do their research, and you can tell they are passionate about every episode. Thanks to the podcast, I have several new destinations on my bucket list. Keep up the good work, ladies. Well, thank you, Lily. And Ken, five stars awesome. I've been listening for quite a while now, and I love the show. I've learned some things and love spooky stuff, so it's a great combo. Keep up the great work. Well, thank you so much, Ken. We appreciate that. All right. We want to thank you guys for joining us for this one. I have been your host, Diane. And this has been Denise. You take care now. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. We'd like to welcome new executive producers, Roxanne Goon and Cindy Fellows. Thanks. Want to keep the spooks away? Give us a review. Societies rise and societies fall. When the time comes, one society steps forward to build a better future. The Wicked Library 
Kettle Whistle Radio, Night Story Podcast, Prog Watch, Red Horse Radio, The Lift, History Goes Bump, Listen, The M Writing Podcast, Society 13, Rebuilding Society, One Podcast at a Time.